Well, there are few events on the planet more special than attending a wedding, the wedding scene. There's no event more special than your own wedding. And all the men said, there's no event more special than your own wedding day. And all the men said, yeah, there you go. Men have to have things repeated before they get it, okay? For those of you who are married, certain details of your wedding day probably stand out to you. After all the details, the planning, the praying, the purchasing, the stress, (laughs) the family members, the stress... Finally, the day arrives. The groom is anxious. The bride is nervous. One bride I read about some time ago was so nervous, she knew she was going to faint walking down the center aisle. And her daddy, they were at the back of the sanctuary, just about ready to march. And he leaned down and gave her a little advice. He said, honey, the key is concentration. He said, now look, when we start out, the first thing you do is you just concentrate on the aisle. As we get a little closer, about halfway down, you look up and you focus on the altar. And then you get a little closer and you just focus on uh, your bridegroom. You you focus on him. So the moment arrived and they began to march down. And sure enough, she followed that advice. She walked down that rose petal strewn path. And people were a bit startled, though, as she passed them because they could hear her muttering under her breath, I'll alter him. I'll alter him. Not bad advice. Most men are in need of alteration, and all the women said, and not so loud. I've had the privilege of performing weddings over the years. I've never seen a bride anything less than beautiful, and the groom anything less than joyful. And you have some pictures to show if you've been married. Maybe you look back at them every once in a while. One of my favorite wedding pictures was when that photographer captured the moment when the wedding march began and my bride descended the, the, uh, the steps from the balcony down to where her dad waited for her at the bottom of the, the stairs. And the photographer captured the moment when she was walking down. But if you look closely at the picture, you can see her eyes are looking up here toward me. And my heart was racing at about 120. It didn't slow down the left of the wedding cake. I'll never forget that. One of our funniest memories was after the wedding, Marcia and I sped away from the church to her childhood home where her parents were living, and we were going to change clothes and then take off for our honeymoon. Only after we got to her parents' home, we realized we'd forgotten the key to the house to get in. We walked around that house. It was, it was locked. The front door was locked. We walked around to the back of that little home, and the back door was locked, but we noticed uh, the bathroom window was open. It was about eight feet above the ground, and I can still remember putting my hands together and hoisting my bride up <laughs> to where she could just get a hold of that window and climb through, the we- uh, climb through that window, wedding dress and all. <laughs> Wish I had a picture of that. That would be great. Throughout human history, weddings, wedding ceremonies, wedding arrangements, wedding decorations, wedding apparel have all been significant moments. In fact, they've been the highlight of the human race. For the Jewish 
young men and women who didn't have an arranged marriage. As I was preparing for this message, going back into the context of the Jewish wedding, which has great significance in, in the way prophetic scripture rolls out, as I'll show you today. It's interesting to me, the rabbis taught that for those who were single, that a woman must never seek after a husband, but that the man should seek out his wife. Kind of interesting how they argued. They argued that this should be the rule because man was formed from clay, but woman came from man's rib. Therefore, when a man was looking for his wife, he was merely looking for what he had lost. Isn't that good? She wants to say, oh, that is wonderful. The rabbis also told, I thought this was funny, that man was made from soft clay and woman was made from a hard rib bone. And and that illustrated, they taught, why men are easier to get along with than women. (laughs) Actually, I didn't think that was funny at all, those those rabbis. (laughs) Well, if you haven't discovered it yet, if you're new to the faith... You'll learn as you study the Bible that the plan of salvation is a love story. In fact, J. Vernon McGee, the late Bible expositor, referred to it as the romance of redemption. God the Father refers to Israel as his bride. God the Son is called a bridegroom and calls the church his bride. It's no surprise to me as we reach this point in human history where it's about to change forever with the second coming of Christ, that the language of Revelation chapter 19 sort of shifts into the imagery of a wedding. It is the coming of Christ, which is effectively the coming of the bridegroom. And when he comes, he comes with his church, who is called the bride. Now, later on in the millennial kingdom, that imagery of a bride will be expanded to include the Old Testament saint. But for now, the focus is on the bride, those who've come to faith in Christ during this dispensation of grace. You could easily entitle this paragraph in the middle of chapter 19 of Revelation, Here Comes the Bride. In fact, it's impossible to capture the significance of this moment apart from the wedding customs of biblical times. So let me kind of work you through four significant events that take place in a Jewish, biblical Jewish wedding. They are the betrothal, the presentation, the ceremony, and the wedding feast. We'll slow down and go back through each one of them, one at a time. Now, there could literally be years between the betrothal and the wedding feast. That's because a Jewish boy and a Jewish girl could be betrothed without ever meeting one another. Now, in America and in the Western world... We have that little ditty, that little children's rhyme that goes something like this. Johnny and Susie sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes a baby and a baby carriage. Not a bad progression of events. First comes love, then comes marriage. Not for a Jewish couple. First came marriage, then came love. To them, it was first, I do. And then, I love you. For us, it's I love you, and then, maybe, I do. Well, why would this be the case in the Jewish culture? 
Well, because their marriages were arranged by their parents. Their parents decided who they would marry, which I think is a brilliant idea. I have daughters. I'll be happy to arrange. I'll alter him. That's my motto. <laughs> well, this was the system and culture in the days of Christ. In fact, it's still the culture of many around our world. It's been a delight to add to our deacon fellowship a godly man by the name of Raj. Raj and his wife Anna are originally from India. They've recently celebrated their seventh wedding anniversary. And it was an arranged marriage by their parents. Raj and Anna met on the day they were officially engaged. I've asked him and her, you know, how how does that work? You know, how does that feel? What is that like? And it's been delightful to hear of their culture. They both, with believing parents... Had the arrangements made, it was a system of honor that they respected. They both love Christ. They have grown to love each other, and now they're in their eighth year of marriage. This is the culture of the patriarchs. This is Isaac and Rebekah, Genesis chapter 24. They had never seen each other until they married. Moses records, Isaac took Rebekah, and she became his wife, And he loved her. It was first I do, and then I will learn to love you. Which I think our Western culture could learn a lot about in this generation. In the arrangement of the marriage betrothal, parents would meet each other. They would always have at least two witnesses, which was their custom. And they would negotiate the betrothal contract. Now, in those days, the betrothal was a binding legal arrangement. It was much more significant to the Jewish people than engagement is in our Western world. During the betrothal period, the man and his future bride were actually referred to as husband and wife. Even though they didn't live together, they hadn't had the wedding ceremony, that hadn't taken place yet. These two young people, during their betrothal, would be faithful to one another, even though they were not fully married or Uh, their marriage physically consummated. It was a time when the bride would be observed for her chastity and her purity. She would be observed by the family and friends for her devotion to her coming uh, bridegroom and their marriage together. And the man during this betrothal period would be away. He'd be back at his father's homestead building on to the father's house, preparing the place where he and his bride would, would live. Now, the betrothal period typically lasted about 12 months, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter, but it was always a time of joyful anticipation and preparation. In fact, the betrothal is formally called the preparation. That's why it was so devastating to Joseph to learn of Mary's pregnancy during the time of their what? Their betrothal. When Mary, Matthew wrote, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. In other words, at that critical juncture in this process, 
in this, in this period of time where she is supposed to be revealing her purity and faithfulness uh, to him alone, where she's to be preparing for the home that she would uh, create and provide with him her betrothed husband, Mary is found to have been unfaithful. She's expecting, and everything now is shattered. Little wonder it would take the appearance of an angel to keep Joseph on the path to marrying his betrothed. Listen, we, the church, the bride of Christ, are to live with joyful anticipation of that moment when we will be united with our betrothed. The Apostle Paul, in fact, used this language. Even though now we can be called wife and Christ husband, That has yet to be fully consummated in the ceremony and the establishment of the kingdom. And so Paul uses this wedding imagery to speak to us as he writes to the Corinthians. He says this, For I betrothed you to one husband. In other words, he he uses the language as if he is the parent. And he is saying to the church, I've already negotiated by virtue of the gospel this betrothal arrangement where you've become his. And and he's saying this, that I might present you as a pure virgin, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. First Corinthians 11, 2. So stay devoted. We in this waiting period of time stay pure. We follow after Christ. We, we, we would please our beloved, so to speak. Another aspect of this betrothal period is the dowry. This is the price paid by the groom and his family for the bride. Now, in this culture, the women were so involved in establishing the home, in fact, managing and running the household, everything from crops to cattle and and children, that the size of the family would grow through the childbirth of the matriarch. The loss of a daughter, one Hebrew scholar wrote, I learned this this week, how they thought about this. The loss of a daughter, he wrote, was viewed as the diminishing of efficiency for her family and increasing the efficiency of her husband's family. So the groom had to pay the price of a dowry to compensate for the loss. Another brilliant idea. (laughs) As we've already learned in our last session together, Revelation 19 is the coming of Christ to earth with his bride. And I find it fascinating as we slip into this scene that, that... The wedding imagery comes to the surface. Look at verse 7 of chapter 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now wait a second. He is coming as a conquering sovereign. In fact, he'll be described later on in chapter 19 with that descriptive phrase, King of kings and Lord of lords. Why is there a reference not to him as King of kings and Lord of lords, but a reference to him as the Lamb? I think this is a reference 
back to the idea of the dowry. This is the title of his suffering. This is the title of his glory through his death. This would be then an implication of the dowry he paid for the bride. For the bride cost him what? His life. Ephesians 5.25 You have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God with your body. 1 Corinthians 6. 20. And so the bride is seen with her groomsmen and he is called the lamb. So evidently the betrothal period now is over. Never a set time. The groom would send out a message that he was on the way to the bride's home to collect her. Now what happens next in the typical Jewish wedding scene or process would be what we see happening in the New Testament. We've studied it already. It's called the presentation. After the betrothal is the presentation. Now, at this stage, the bridegroom comes to take his bride back home. He will come. Now, typically, he would, he would walk to her home and return to where she's living and then take her back with him to the father's house. Now, if you're listening, you're going to hear implications of the gospel already. Now, this presentation is a time of festivities. It's a great Celebration And based on the wealth of the groom, uh, that would determine the length of it. So if we were a Jewish family today, we would tell our daughters that their presentation could last 30 minutes. Now, if you were wealthy, it could last a day. If you were really wealthy, it could last a week. The wedding hasn't taken place yet. It's the presentation of the bride, where the bride is presented to the home the household, the family, the friends of the groom. So in this imagery of an ancient wedding, what would be the presentation? It would be the rapture. It would be that time marked when the the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, takes his bride back to the father's house for a brief period of time, a time of festivities, a time of celebration before the wedding ceremony. A time, in fact, in fact, we've watched a few times where we've seen the elders representing the church in heaven as they are before the throne during this time of presentation, worshiping and singing praise to their God. Now, the presentation of the bride then, prophetically for us, has now lasted seven years. The tribulation is happening on earth. The bride is being presented to the Father in the Father's house. Now, it might seem odd to have such a long period of time for the presentation of the bride, seven years. But consider the fact that the betrothal has lasted now some 2,000 years as the bride is being gathered. And the bridal party is not yet complete, is she? No. That will take place, in fact, when the bridal party is completed That last member of the bride to accept the Lord as sovereign Savior, the announcement will go out with the rapture call of the trumpet that the bridegroom is coming to sweep away his bride and present her to the Father. This is the next event on the prophetic calendar, by the way. This is what we're waiting for, the presentation of the bride, the sweeping away of the bride for a brief time of festivities, and then the ceremony. And then the wedding feast. We have been betrothed to Christ. 
In wedding imagery, he's preparing a place for us at his father's house. In fact, this is the exact imagery that Jesus Christ spoke of to his disciples and to us when he said to them in John 14, 2 and 3, in my father's house are many monet. You could translate it, many apartments, many dwelling places, many rooms. I am going away to prepare that place for you, and I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I'm going to come and get you, the bride, and present you in this place that I've prepared. And that's still only the second part of the scene of this wonderful succession of events and an Orthodox Jewish wedding. Now, the third stage of the wedding is now ready to take place. It's the actual wedding ceremony. Now, a Jewish wedding ceremony, much like a Western uh, wedding, would involve vows and, and prayers and, and uh, blessings, exchange of rings. Now, we're not given wedding ceremony details, although we can put some clues together at what's taking place as the bride is presented and then brought together in union with her bridegroom in the ceremony, the exchanging of, of promises where our Lord honors us before his Father as we have honored him. I personally believe that many of the promises made to the church in Revelation 2 and 3 are going to be a part of the wedding ceremony. I'll give you one example. When my wife and I were married, I gave her something that she had never owned before. Now, I'm not thinking of our matching wedding bands. I am thinking of my name. All her life, up to that point, her name had been Marcia Gladney, a good Irish name. But yet, as that wedding ceremony came to a close, we were introduced for the first time as Mr. and Mrs. Stephen Davy. And from that point on, her name changed from Gladney to Davy. Christ promised the church in chapter 2 that he would give them, in fact, individually, a precious gem of some sort with a new name inscribed on it, a unique name given by the groom to the bride. We're not told what that name is. We will find out later. Now, in most wedding ceremonies, the wedding attire is what many people come to see. It's magnificent, isn't it? The groom, who will be described for us later on in chapter 19, will be dressed as the king, for he is a king. The Jewish groom would dress as much like a king as he possibly could dress. He would borrow the finest clothing. We rent tuxedos today. You know, he would borrow jewelry. He would, in fact, he would scent his garments in frankincense and myrrh. That was their culture and custom. Now, we most often think of gold, frankincense, and myrrh as those gifts given to our Lord when he was a little boy by the Magi as a significant mark of his coming, not only his royalty, but his coming suffering and, and death because frankincense and myrrh, if you are wealthy enough, were part of your burial. However, there's more to it than that. These were the elements of a groom coming for his bride. So even from the time of his childhood, these gifts not only spoke of Jesus Christ's death, they spoke of his great delight. These elements not only signified his burial, 
but his bride. And John provides for us, and we'll look at this very brief statement of uh, the bridal apparel, because that is significant as well. Go to verse 7 again, the latter part. It said, his bride has made herself ready. Verse 8, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now we're given three descriptive words about her bridal dress. This is the bridal gown of the church, and each individual will be marked, as I'll show you in a moment. The first descriptive word is translated fine linen. This was expensive, beautiful cloth. Joseph, when he was elevated to prime minister, we're told he put on fine linen. Genesis 41, verse 42. King David, uh, the royal king of Israel, wore fine linen as part of his kingly dress, First Chronicles 15. This was the fabric of the powerful. This was the clothing of the wealthy, the royalty. So we, the bride, we, royalty, connected powerfully to the king of the universe, will be wearing fine linen. The bridal dress is also referred to as bright Lampros, which gives us our word lamp. It's used in a way that, in fact, can be translated not just bright, but, but shining. There is a glowing of the bridal apparel. There is a radiance about it that is magnificent to behold. Finally, we're told in this text that the bride is dressed in, in a clean garment. This word is the word translated pure. Now, you notice at the beginning of verse it was given to her to clothe herself in this. In other words, theologically understood, our righteous purity and radiance must come from God. It must come from the bridegroom who credits to our account his righteousness. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. But notice as well the latter part of this verse. Uh, Notice how there, there seems to be that implication then that this is something given to us, but it is uniquely marked by the obedience of the bride. Notice the last part of verse 8. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. In other words, there is both the gifting of Christ in our wedding gown, but there is the responsibility of the Christian, which will evidently be apparent to everyone else. There is both a corporate sense to this wedding attire, and there is a personal, individual sense reflected by our obedience on earth as well. See, this is the fullest picture of Ephesians 2. We know verses 8 and 9. We camp out there, and it is a wonderful place to camp out. For by grace are you saved through faith, right? Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. But verse 10 says this. We then, those who are saved, are his workmanship. We, the bride then, those who are saved, are created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, since good works do not get a person into the bridal party, many have wondered how good works make any difference at all 
in the future kingdom. Here's one clear indication. It is our unique display as individual members of this bridal party based on our attire that reflects our commitment and obedience to Christ. Now many evangelical scholars place the Bema seat during the tribulation while the bride is being presented to the Father in heaven. Paul wrote of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where the people of God will be rewarded individually for their good works. This is not to determine whether or not you're going into heaven. You wouldn't be at the Bema seat if you weren't going to heaven. In fact, you are already there. But it will determine your position in the coming kingdom. How did you use your one talent, your five talents, your ten talents? How did you use that which was distributed to you by sovereign God? Did you bury it? Did you use it? Did you multiply it? And the one who used it will be given more. And this is a reference, I believe, to the Bema, where those who faithfully serve Christ will be uniquely displayed with this this sense of glory in their wedding attire as they are being robed for the wedding ceremony and celebration. I like to think of this, this garment then, and to help you understand it correctly, let me illustrate it by means of something that I think is appropriate, and that would be a graduation gown. How many of you have graduated from somewhere? Okay. How many of you flunked out? No, I won't ask that question. Okay. If you graduated, you got that black gown. And frankly, it it was plain, and it was simple, and you were thrilled, weren't you? You are in the graduation line and you got that thing zipped up and, and you got your cap and, and they told you where to line up and, and, and eventually you took off. Now, if you look closely, there are many people had the, the plain gown and, and yet there were some with embroidered work signifying honors. There are some with medallions hooked to their gown signifying highest honors. There would be those in the graduation, a procession, uh, those who've lived longer, uh, served longer, had more opportunity, uh, represented by the faculty. They would be robed and and there would be colors in their gown representing their distinctive study and their degree. Uh, Whenever I march in the Shepherd's Seminary commencement exercises, I'm wearing my my gown, my, my robe, and I have stripes on my arms, each stripe signifying something. The color red is woven in, signifying that my degree is theology, embroidered by gold. And, and there at the bottom of the sleeve, there is a, a stripe representing the fact that I serve as the president of Shepherd's Theological Seminary. Fortunately, none of that reveals my grade point average while I was in school. That's a good thing. That's the point, though, of a bridal gown. It's not negative. It's not informing anybody of something you didn't do. It is reflecting what you did do for Christ. Nobody's going to go weeping down the aisle. Oh, my dress. No, we're going to be thrilled that the grace of God has enabled us by means of our faith which he gave us in Christ to be robed. However, 
Those of the church who faithfully serve Christ, who who live with a sense of devotion to him, whether it is emptying a sink of dirty dishes, changing a diaper, serving in some way, capacity, the body of Christ, whatever it is, if it's done into the glory of God, it will effectively show up in a way. And you will reveal the glory of God through you in this radiant attire. And I couldn't help but think as I, as I studied this, I wonder what my gown is going to look like. Maybe you're wondering what yours is going to look like. We know that martyrs for Christ will wear unique crowns for their testimony, uniquely rewarded. Elders who faithfully serve the sheep will be uniquely rewarded Those who persevered under severe trials will be uniquely rewarded. Those who pursued a holy lifestyle will be uniquely rewarded. Those, we're even told, who long for his coming will be uniquely rewarded. It's as if God really wants to put a lot of stuff into the attire. So when the bride marches in the procession, Her gown will simply reflect the glory of God she allowed by her obedience to work through her while on earth. One author said, the reality of this doesn't sink in, that in a way we weave on earth what we wear in heaven. God gave us on earth, what he gave us on earth and his gifts will determine the way we are presented with the bridegroom when he comes. This is a challenging thought. It reminds me, he wrote of the familiar lines, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Now we're not told exactly if the wedding ceremony takes place in heaven after the rapture of the church and the subsequent Bema seat or if the wedding ceremony takes place on earth as the millennial kingdom begins. And of all the commentaries and all of the study I did, I could probably put one stack for each view and all of their good reasons. What John's vision to me implies in Revelation 19, it seems to indicate that the wedding ceremony has just taken place in heaven prior to the descent. It's because... I would throw my hat in with those who would say she's already wearing her wedding attire, her wedding garments. And by the way, either side would argue, and this is a wonderful argument for a pre-tribulational rapture. How otherwise do you get the church descending with Christ from heaven if they're on earth having just survived the tribulation? No, they're descending with him. They're attired. They are rewarded, uh, indicating the bema has taken place. Strong uh, proof for the church having already been presented in the Father's house while the tribulation unfolded on earth. In fact, it's interesting that the church hasn't been mentioned since chapter 6, where the church was seen in heaven singing before the throne of God. But now, chapters later, now in chapter 19, where Christ is returning from heaven, guess what? The church is clearly mentioned again. That unique expression, the bride is with him. We're in the wedding party. And I guess you could say the wedding march has now reached the point where Christ will present us to all the world, reflecting all his glory. Now we're heading for the final stage of the wedding. 
It's time for the fourth and final event in this succession of events. It's the wedding feast. Look at verse 9. Then he said to me, write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In other words, his death and sacrifice gave us the ticket. So now we can be part of this. Now, I don't suppose you can have a wedding without a wedding reception, right? Just wouldn't be right, would it? And in order to prepare for the right amount of people, uh, the right amount of of, uh, food and beverage, you've got to have a guest list. John writes here a special blessing to all who are invited to participate in the wedding feast, a celebration that will last throughout the kingdom. Well, who are those, uh, these people who have RSVP'd for the reception? Well, it can't be the bride. A bride is not invited to her own wedding reception. She's the honored guest along with her groom, right? This would be the friends of the bride. You put the clues together and you discover that it will involve some resurrected Old Testament believers. In fact, Matthew 8 and Luke 13 both refer to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as being in the kingdom. As the kingdom lengthens toward the end, you find the terminology in Revelation expanding to include uh, Israel. Here initially we have these mentioned. The guests will include the heroes of faith and Hebrews 11, John the Baptist described himself as a friend of the bridegroom. John 3.29 will be there. All those who accepted Christ during the tribulation, who've survived, will actually enter the feast, enter the kingdom in their mortal bodies. Israel, who converted to Christ as a nation, looking upon him whom they've pierced as he descends, will be guests at the feast as well. They will come in, John Phillips writes it descriptively, they'll file in rank after rank, they'll meet the groom and the bride, they'll take their places at the table, they are full of joy also, they are blessed of God. And this wedding feast will literally last a thousand years, so to speak. It will culminate in the new heaven and the new earth. John, the apostle, is so overwhelmed that verse 10 tells us he fell down. He fell down at the feet of an angel. He is so moved by this. And, and it's hard for us to understand, but to just consider for the, fa- for, for the moment that, that John has been exiled on the island of Patmos. The church is being beaten. It's suffering. It is struggling through difficult days. If it has any garment at all, it will be torn and blood soaked. And John is transported to this vision of a, of a ceremony and a feast and involving the bride of Christ, triumphant, robed in all of her glory. <laughs> and he just, he wipes out. We probably would too. In fact, he, 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 he's so... He becomes so unfocused that he he begins to worship the angel, praising the angel. The angel says in in verse 10, don't do that. Don't worship me. Worship worship God. I'm just a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship, 
Worship God. And then he ends by saying this interesting phrase, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What does he mean? He means that prophecy is at its core about Jesus Christ. He means that that the coming of Christ, both the first time and this second time, is the content of prophecy. Jesus Christ is the culmination. He is the climax of prophetic scripture. You can't go any higher than him. You can't speak of anyone greater than him. That's why the book is rightly named from the very first phrase in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 1. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It isn't, it isn't just a revelation of kingdoms and coalitions and an antichrist and, and the dragon and the tribulation and the bowls and the trumpets and, and all of that. This is at its highest point and its deepest meaning a revelation of Jesus Christ. We miss him. We miss everything. We, we can get all tied in to all of the details and miss the beauty of prophetic scripture. It is, it is Jesus Christ. Prophecy finds all its delights and joys and fulfillments in him. I close with this. Well, not quite, but I'm, I'm close. As a, as a part of the Orthodox Jewish wedding, as I researched in my study for this message, I came across so much that I'm not even able to bring to you. Um, but let me, let me give you a couple of interesting things as they tie into Scripture. The ceremony of an Orthodox Jewish couple involves seven blessings. The saying of seven blessings, and at different times, different people will come forward and quote them. They're just sentences. The last one, signifying the end of the ceremony and the beginning of this wedding feast is this statement, and I quote, in this seventh blessing, we pray for the time Messiah will come to redeem us from exile so that peace and tranquility will reign over the world. And here you have it. It will come true. And it comes true in Revelation chapter 19. One more. In a typical Jewish wedding, as the wedding feast is about to begin, the bride and groom will drink from a cup of new wine as a sign of their rejoicing. Fresh squeezed. I couldn't help but think of the promise of Christ who said to his disciples centuries earlier, there in that upper room, he said, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you. Where? In the kingdom. That's happening here. As Christ fulfills his promise that the church has been commemorating every time we lift that little cup to our lips, Jesus Christ said, I'm not going to drink it again until I drink it with you. And so now here he is. I envision him lifting this ceremonial cup to his lips, filled with new wine, fulfilling with his bride a promise he has made at least 2,000 years ago. And then the wedding feast and the reign of the Messiah 
begins at last. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the way that you have woven into Scripture wonderful truths from our own lives that reflect just a portion, just a a sliver of the great glory that will come in the days we're studying. It's no surprise to us how things fit together, and yet how wonderful. Thank you that you have given to us by that gift of faith to believe in Christ our wedding apparel. Would you help us this week, Father, as the bride of your Son, living with anticipation during the betrothal to be devoted, pure and holy, dedicated to you. Maybe, friends, while our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, we ought to just take a moment, just a minute. If you know Christ by faith, you belong to him, you're his bride, perhaps there's something in your life that needs to be set aside. As you live during this betrothal period like you ought to be living, maybe it's a sin to confess. Maybe it's a relationship to end. Maybe it's an activity to stop. Maybe it's a temptation to continue resisting with greater effort than ever. Maybe it's a perspective to adopt. It's a trial to endure. All of that will be your future reward. So pray right now. Take care of whatever you need to take care of right now to make things right. As the bride is praying, perhaps you've never given your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Do that right where you sit. You've resisted. You've said no. How can you miss this? Why would you want to? We as the bride would exhort you to join the bridal party. Accept Christ now. You can do that right where you sit, right now. But if you need some spiritual counsel and help so that you can know that you have, you have your name, that new name that will be given to you by the bridegroom because your name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life, we want to help you know that for sure. Father, thank you for the joy who was set before your son, who endured what he endured for the glory of these days. Give us joy as we anticipate these days as well. And that will strengthen us for the days we are living in now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.